So we're talking about a God who was always with us. From the very beginning of creation, God was there revealing himself as a good God. And man comes along and man takes on this this decision to do things their own way. We do things our own way, and I've got the wrong slides up there, I'm sorry. We'll just have to do without slides. Man comes along and decides to do his own thing and and comes in and makes a decision that, that his will is more important than God's will. And we see the fall that happens in the garden and the consequences of that fall. But God is still a good God and God does not give up on us. God continues to come in to rescue. God continues to come in and create. And he comes in and chooses this strange character, Abraham, and chooses to create once again and creates a nation. Creates a nation that's purpose will be to bless the world. And Abraham dies not seeing the fulfillment of that promise. And and Abraham's son and grandson and great-grandson come along and and we have this character of Joseph. And Joseph comes in and and is used by God in lousy circumstances and in great adversity comes in and is used to continue to rescue God's people. We see God continuing to be at work in what we're calling the upper story. This big picture of God working. God is a good God. God is pursuing us. God wants us. And so today we get into chapter 4 of the story. If you're with us for the first time, we're in a series titled The Story where we are, are going through and using excerpts from, from Genesis to Revelation, trying to get this big picture of who God is and how he works throughout Scripture. So how many of you have read chapter 4? A little bit of accountability here. Quite a few of us are reading chapter 4. If, if you don't have one of these yet, pick one up in the foyer. Be reading with us. We've got the kids' version that Molly read out of this morning. Do that with your kids and have a, a family devotional time as well. But in chapter 4, we're introduced to this character of Moses who really comes at a really bad time in history. People have forgotten who Joseph is. People have forgotten that he was the rescuer that came in and was used by God to to rescue Egypt from famine. But the people have grown. There's there's millions of them now. But, But the generation of Joseph and those that have remembered them are long gone. And so now the Israelites find themselves as slaves slaves in this land of Egypt, and and they don't have their own place, they don't have their own nation, but they continue to grow. And there is this mystery of things. We do not understand what God is doing in this process. The people feel like he is silent, that he has abandoned them. And we're reminded of Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. But God has this upper story, this this story that is unfolding, and, and it's his thoughts and his ways that sees what's going on. Moses' mother manages to hide this baby for for a few months, protecting him from this evil decree from the king that says there are too many Egyptians, or there are too many Israelites, they're a threat to Egypt, and we've got to kill all the baby boys. But Moses is rescued from this, and, and as we read the story, 
Moses is put into a basket and left into a river. I'm not quite sure what mom is thinking of at that point. Maybe she's hoping that someone will find this baby. Maybe she just can't stand to see her baby die, and so, so she sends him off. But, but the baby is found by a princess. Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, brings him in, takes him as his own, and gives him the name Moses. Oftentimes we see in scripture where God gives a name, but in this case, it is the princess that gives the name of Moses, which means out of the water. Clue into this name, out of the water, and and how water continues to be a part of this narrative from beginning to end. We see the importance of water. But he is raised as royalty in the palace. He is part of the royal family. And at some point into adulthood, he knows that he's an Israelite. And he's out seeing his people and he kills an Egyptian who's beating one of the Israelites. And he thinks that he can cover this up and bury it in the sand, but realizes that he can't and he's exposed and he flees. And he evacuates his place and and goes into hiding for 40 years. And in hiding there, he becomes a shepherd. Quite a difference from the royal life that he's been living and now this life of a shepherd out in the wilderness. And then my favorite story of all of the Old Testament, Moses encounters God. He comes upon this bush while looking for a lost sheep. And comes upon this this bush and it's burning and it's burning, but it does not burn up. And God gets Moses' attention and says, I want something from you. It's just a little thing, really. I want something from you. And in chapter 3, or in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, page 46 of the story, if you want to follow along there, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of my slave drivers, because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Then God presents this plan. Here's my plan. I want you, so you, Moses, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh, the king, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So no small task here. This guy who's been in the wilderness for 40 years, herding sheep, probably a little off, is being asked to go against the king of Egypt and say, let your workforce go. Let your livelihood go. Let all that you know go because I said so. And so Moses has a few questions about this plan. He's a little uncertain about this. He's actually scared of this and tries to come up with every excuse possible. Moses says, who am I? Who am I that I could go and be before Pharaoh and speak to him? And God says he will provide the answers. And then then he continues to come up with excuses. 
But God gives them these miraculous tools to use to get Pharaoh's attention. This, this snake, this staff that's thrown down to become a snake and then picked up and becomes a staff again. And then he puts his hand in his cloak and pulls it out and it's full of leprosy and he puts it back in and it is clean again. And then if that doesn't work, pour out the water from the Nile and it becomes blood. God is continuing to silence Moses' excuses, but Moses doesn't stop there. He keeps the excuses up. But what we learn from this, this, this lesson, this is what is for me out of this story that, that I hold on to so much. God will never ask you to do something without, without equipping you, without enabling you to do it. God is not going to ask you to do something if he does not give you the tools, if he does not give you the resources to carry out that calling. Now, this takes incredible faith to walk out that statement. To say, God is calling me to something, and I cannot see all the answers, I cannot see the big picture, I cannot see the end thing, but God is calling me to that, and he will enable me to do that. He's not going to call you into something that you're not capable of doing. Now, it sure will look like we're not capable of doing it. Moses says, I have a stutter. I can't speak in front of people. I'm afraid of being in front of a crowd. I am not the right guy for this. I cannot do this. Moses continues the excuses. He's not right. Moses said to the Lord in verse 10, Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow with speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. Go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. But Moses doesn't give up and says, pardon your servants. Lord, please send someone else. Excuse after excuse, and finally, please send somebody else. But God's reply is, who makes humans? Who makes their mouths? I will speak for you. Go. This sounds so much like us, doesn't it? God calls us to something, maybe it's some little step of faith, or calls us to something much bigger. And we look at God and say, ah, send somebody else. I'm too busy for that. I'm uncomfortable with that. That's too risky. Now's not the right time. Send somebody else. But God says, go. This motivates me so much to want to be more obedient, that God is calling someone like Moses to do something so incredible, and even he is fearful, someone that we are still telling stories about thousands of years later, serves as an example for us to be obedient. Moses has every right to be fearful. Some surveys have said that the number two fear of Americans is dying, and the number one fear is public speaking. And so Moses is not unlike most of us. He's afraid of being in front of a crowd. He's afraid of speaking in front of others. And then you add on top of that who his audience is. It is king. 
a king who claims to be a god. And he has to go and have an audience before him. How many of you have ever felt like Moses? Where, God, I am the wrong person. You have called me to this. I am the wrong person. This is not my gifting. This is not my skill set. You have got the wrong person. I can't make a difference in my workplace. I can't help those people. I can't encourage that hurting neighbor. I can't make myself vulnerable in a small group. I can't do these things. And God says, go. I'm going to work through you regardless of that. What do those excuses sound like to the the God of the universe, the one who creates everything? Moses comes up with these excuses, and, and God doesn't say, oh, look at how humble Moses is. He just thinks so lowly of himself. He doesn't want to go do this big, spectacular thing and be written about in history books. No, God is mad at him. God says, why are you coming up with all these excuses? Go and do this. Too often we have these insecurities and we label it as humility. We don't want to be up in front of the crowd. We don't want to be recognized. We don't want to be seen. But that is not humility. That's pride because it is about me. It is about my insecurities. It's about what I don't want to do. It's about how comfortable I have to be. And so when we are not obedient to what God is calling us to do, that is not humility. When we are insecure about who we are, that's not humility. That's just pride disguised as something else. But something happens, and Moses obeys. I guess he's finally convinced. The whole burning bush thing, God talking to him, finally convinces him that he is going to do this. But Moses is 80 years old. He's 80 years old, and he's been called to go in front of Pharaoh to deliver God's message. And he's delivering this message to somebody he probably knows, somebody that he grew up with, somebody that he may have been in this family with growing up in the Egyptian palace. And he's going to this person saying, hey, remember me, the guy who ran away 40 years ago? God is telling you to let my people go. And in the same way that that Winston Churchill had to, to confront the Nazis, and say, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. Boldly claiming that. Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Moses confronts the authorities, confronts the ones who's in control, and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, see you later. No, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and Pharaoh will not put up with this. And Pharaoh says, no. You know what I'm going to do? Instead of telling you you can leave, I'm actually going to make your work harder. And now the Israelites are like, hey, thanks, Moses. Make it a lot better for us. Really improve conditions. Now we've got double the workload. But Moses does not stop there. Moses is God's messenger for for ten plagues. Water Water into blood. 
frogs, gnats, flies, diseased livestock, boils, storms of hail, locusts, darkness. And then we get to the final plague. Pharaoh is so fed up with Moses that he says, I never want to see you again. If I see you again, I will kill you. And Moses says, okay. And in Exodus 11, he sends this message to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who's in her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And so now we have this final plague, the death of the firstborn. If you are a firstborn male, would you please stand up? How many of you are the oldest son? I'm an oldest son. I'm a firstborn son. Okay, so God wipes you out. Wipes you out. Look around. How many of you are affected by this curse? How many of you are affected by it? Okay, have a seat. There is this incredible thing happening here where, where the firstborn son is wiped out. And this does not go unnoticed. Pharaoh has enough. Pharaoh has enough. Again and again, we hear this phrase, and they will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. And so Pharaoh says, go. He's had enough. And this massive exodus of, of what's estimated to be two to three million people start to pick up and leave. How many of you have been to the balloon fiesta? And you stood in that line to get off the dumb park and ride, to get back on a bus. Moving that many people is a challenge, and that is only a fraction of what we're talking about here. Moses has to move two to three million people in some sort of efficient and effective way. And so this group moves out, and God leads, leads them to a place where they are cornered, they're trapped. And once again, the Israelites are like, hey, thanks a lot. Things would have been a lot better in Egypt. Thanks for cornering us against this water. And now Pharaoh changes his mind, and the army is pursuing them, and they see the army pursuing them, and they see the water in front of them, and they're stuck. And they do not have faith that God will rescue them. Moses answered the people in chapter 14, verse 13. Do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Ah, favorite line of mine there. The Lord will fight for you. And you need to fight really hard with them. No, the Lord will fight for you. And all you have to do, 
You don't have to be smart enough. You don't have to be skilled enough. You don't have to be big enough. You just have to be still because God will fight that fight for you if you will be still. And so Moses raises his staff and the sea parts and at the perfect time they get through and then the army comes through and the sea crashes back down on them and wipes out that army. They will never be seen again. God knew what he was doing back at the very beginning when he chose Moses. He was perfect for the job. Even though he didn't think he was qualified, he was perfectly prepared for this job. He grew up in in one of the best education systems of the time. He was watching Pharaoh manage large numbers of people. He was prepared for just a time as this. And God says the same to you. You are uniquely chosen. You are prepared for this time. Do as I say. Do as I say and put your trust in me. God delivers us from slavery to freedom. He delivers us from despair to hope. He delivers us from death to life. God is a God of deliverance, and he provides that deliverance for a purpose in our lives, not so we can just simply sit around and watch. He delivers us for a purpose. He is calling us to something greater. And this story gives us a preview of salvation, a preview of the resurrection. Remember this theme of water. Moses comes out of the water and then God uses water to rescue the people and save the people. It is through water that the people are delivered. And it is through water that we are saved. There's no amount of human power that can stop him from fulfilling his plan for us. And so we go back to that 10th plague of how people were saved, how people were delivered. See, the Israelites, they didn't lose their firstborn. God had a plan for them to rescue them and save them. And God commanded them to to be prepared, that they were to eat bread that had no leaven in it, and they were to to kill a lamb and, and sprinkle the blood on the doorposts. The death angel would pass over them and and would skip over them. And they would be saved, they would be rescued. The sign of blood on the doors became a symbol. And they were told to remember that and celebrate that Passover every year. We know that as the Passover meal, the the remembrance of when the death angel passed over the Israelites. And still to this day, Jews and many Christians celebrate that Passover and the the retelling of that story. It's the same story that Jesus was telling as he was eating the Passover meal the night that he was betrayed. Luke 22 gives us this picture. Then Then came the day of unleavened bread, which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. It's this, that they they sat around this table and and Jesus was was walking them through this Passover meal and he, he took the bread and said, this is my body. And then he took the cup and said, this is my blood. 
See what he's saying to his, his Jewish followers here. There is a transition happening. Something is different. This Passover meal that you have been celebrating year after year after year for centuries, something is now changing. This bread is not the bread that you've always thought it was. This bread is now my body. This cup is not the cup that you've been taking year after year. It is now something different. It is my blood. I am the sacrificial lamb that changes everything. I am the final sacrifice. That you don't have to do this sacrifice anymore. Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb that would pay for all of our sins. So the question is, how are we delivered? How are we saved today? And it's in the same way that the Israelites were saved, and it's through the blood of the Lamb. It is through the blood of the Lamb that we're saved. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. This is the sacrifice. And just as the Israelites sprinkled that blood over the doorframe to be saved, we sprinkle that blood onto our hearts. We take communion every week to remember that. And we remember that there is rich imagery here beyond the simple taking of, of a little cracker and a micro little cup of juice. There's so much more to it. There is centuries of story here, of history, of memories of a God who creates, a God who is good, a God who pursues his people and delivers them and saves them. And so as we take communion together every week, we are seeing Jesus, the completion of this story, the completion of everything God had promised. And so we see ourselves in the story. The story is for us.